0: I'm Yvette Benavides, and this is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Today's story, the third in our series celebrating the stories of Gina Berriot, is Works of the Imagination. Protagonist Thomas Lang is a novelist who's holed up in a hotel in the Bernese Alps to write his memoirs, but the words won't come. A disquietude troubles his mind. He's getting older. The all-consuming idea of facing his mortality distracts him from his writing and even, it seems, from the curiosity and compassion that used to guide his work. In his essay, Under All This Noise, from the book Am I Alone Here?, Peter Orner contemplates becoming a reclusive writer. He says there's, quote, something seductive about these mysterious figures who squirrel away and that we can imagine them toiling in a remote mountain cabin. Orner's yearning to vanish is rooted in his uneasy relationship with how theoretically connected we all are with one another now, particularly through the soul-crushing proclivity of oversharing on social media. Inventing characters, writes Orner, non-existent people and introducing them in an already overcrowded, indifferent world is an act of faith. When Orner happens upon a book of poetry by Herbert Morris called What Was Lost, he finds that it's completely bereft of biographical information. No author photo, no bio, no acknowledgments, only the poems. Orner settles on the one titled, History, Weather, Loss, the Children, Georgia, where Morris writes about a photo of Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt sitting in their car in front of a group of schoolchildren who are about to serenade them. Franklin does not touch his wife in that tender moment captured just before the young children break into song, their mouths forever in little O's, but also Eleanor Untouched by Her Husband for an Eternity. Orner surmises that Franklin's failure makes the poem, quote, an elegy for this touch that never happened. Readers, Orner reminds us, want people in their most intimate, unguarded moments, like Franklin, who Morris said committed a crucial failure in not meeting his wife's vulnerability sitting there, in the back of that open car. We see Thomas Lang in many unguarded moments in works of the imagination, including the moment when he's awakened by his heart, by his fear that he is dying, and waits for the feeling to pass with his hand on his chest. This story has a photograph, too, The reclusive Thomas Lang moves his stare from his empty notebook to the framed images on the wall of those who climbed the mountain outside his window and didn't make it back down. The images are like the stories that don't get written silenced by the indifference of others, or worse, our own indifference, the indifference that would make us walk past a photo and never wonder about the inner lives of those smiling back at us, the indifference of not filling a notebook, even though we have stories to share. Books pursue us, says Orner. He found Herbert Morris's book at Dog-Eared Books on Valencia Street in San Francisco, and wonders what made him stop in that day and dig that book out of a bin. And, asks Orner, how many others might be out there somewhere under all this noise, telling us things we need to hear. Gina Berriot answers that question and herself shows through her stories the crucial value of seeing and hearing people, especially those who are unsuccessful and unfortunate, to look beyond the one-dimensionality of a photo or the words on a page and feel Thomas Lang's quickening heartbeat as if it were our own. Just as Orner found Herbert Morris's book that day on Valencia Street, He believes that people who need Berriot find her in those same sorts of acts of faith Orner cleaves to and champions vociferously in quiet acts of reading and writing stories, his own brand of social media. And what happens to Thomas Lang? Listen to this. Welcome to The Lonely Voice on Book Public with Peter Orner. Here's our discussion of Works of the Imagination by Gina Berriot. Works of the Imagination, a little difficult to summarize because it's just about this guy who's going to a place to do some writing.
1: It's like a trope, I mean, of of a kind of story about a writer who can't write. We've probably read many, many of these. I've written some of these. It's a good trick. Like the writer who can't write, but suddenly he writes because it's about a writer who can't write. I think it's almost a cheesy writer trope on the surface. He's traveling back to places that he lived and had important times with people who are now out of his life. And he's hoping, I think, he's hoping that that's going to jumpstart his memoirs because he's reached a certain age that he's going to tell his memoirs.
0: Yeah, and he's been there before. It it almost feels like he's trying to recapture something from... 12 years ago
2: yeah
1: and don't we do that Mm -hmm. you know we go back to a place thinking it's going to mean something and somehow we force it's almost like making a metaphor out of a real place I don't know if that ever really works it doesn't work for this guy
0: well he has this dual perspective from 12 years ago and from now where he says Kind of at the beginning, and of course the landscape—it's all over the place. Just look out a window, and he—and there's something to stare at. The mountains had impressed him back then, as a phenomenon on display. But now he was shocked by their immensity, hypnotized by their beauty and crystal silence. Now even the mountains have changed for him. Twelve years later,
1: right? He's in the—I believe he's in the Austrian Alps. He goes up to climb. Klein Scheidegg to an old hotel, again, to rekindle something in his imagination that's supposedly going to lead to writing, which, you know, frankly, bores me, that idea. I mean, I don't want to, you know, read about a writer trying to write, <laughs> even though, again, I have <laughs> committed this same crime on the page.
0: Well, but the thing about it is, I mean, isn't it for a writer? Endlessly interesting. <laughs> also, to to know that you're not alone, <laughs> and somebody else has written about this or experienced it, and also just to see, well, and what happens to that guy? Um, I don't know. For me, it's I love stories about writers and writing, and there's something for me there that. So I enter the story a, a little bit differently. Um, But I also understand the whole idea of how impossible it is to recapture the past and think that you can make it all some kind of deja vu and walk through it as if you're 12 years younger and have all these fresh ideas that you're going to write about. For me,
1: watching a writer on the page not being able to write is like watching a car accident. I am mesmerized by it, no question about it, but I'm also like, you know, torn apart (laughs) too because... You know, this happens every day. I guess what my point is, what draws me to the story, and I should say, I mean, you suggested this one. I have such affection for other burial stories. I've read this story in the past, and, this, and it never really made an impact. And then you encouraging me to reread it, you know, it completely, I had a different take on it, which again proves that, the idea that, you know, it's when you read a story and it's how you read it. But this story struck me as not being what it's about, or not not being what it's about on the surface. It's not about a guy who's got writer's block.
0: I think it's right on. I wouldn't want to read a story about writer's block. And, you know, then there's this whole question, is there such a thing as writer's block? Some writers say no, some writers say yes. But that's not what the story is about. But he is going to try to recapture something from the past, and we learn that He is, um, it said he had not often assisted himself that way, hanging on to the the rail of the stairs. He was an erect, lean, and healthy 60. Why then was his hand on the banister? Question mark. (laughs) Isn't that that
1: great? (laughs) So he's walking up the stairs, and he's using the banister to help him, even though he doesn't need to. Now, I mean, how how many times have you done that? Mm hmm I mean, I think I did it this morning. You know, like where where I lean on the banister uh, with such great false weariness, you know, <laughs> and 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 I'm like, you know, it's just a it's a wonderful detail, and it, I think it's the moment in the story like, on this reread that I was like, oh right, this is not this is not what it what it is. This is not just a you know, a kind of a, a once famous writer writing his memoirs. And and again, I don't think that's per se bad. I just think it's like it's been done,
2: right?
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think here um, there's more, at, suddenly there's more at stake. And for some reason it's in that gesture when he's sort of not needing the banister. Because in reality, I think he does need it,
0: <laughs> psychically. Yeah. So, exactly. There's something
1: going on with this guy.
0: Because that whole part about... Um, leaning against the rail, is sandwiched between looking at the mountains and their crystal silence, but then it says, cowbells and voices rang in the silence with an entrancingly pure pitch, and the density of the stone was silence in another guise. And then the paragraph after his leaning on the rail is, the silence in the room was like an invasion, a procession of the great silent a possession of the great silent mountains. So, like last time, we talked about Berio's use of the word beauty and wisdom, like these words. So, and then here we have silence all over the place.
1: Yeah, silence all over the place, and yet noise within that silence. I mean, it's not totally. It's like silence has a, you know kind of kind of another connotation, other than noiselessness. You know, it almost has this sort of weight on him. Um, and describing silence as an invasion, that's a thats a different kind of silence than we might be uh, associating the word with
0: normally. But I like that because I feel, you know, in the before times when we could travel and go to a hotel, it's noisy. It's noisy with like unexpected sounds. It's an unusual sensation. I feel like I have when I'm sort of uh, in a new space and out of my comfort zone that I feel like Barrio just captures here. And, of course, there is something else going on. It's like there's a, an invasion of silence because he's not into it. You know, he's not into the majesty of the mountains and this beautiful space he's in of this old hotel. He's in his own head.
1: And that's because, for, I think, at least two reasons— One is last time he was here, he was here with a lover, a friend, and the friend's wife. He was there because they were filming a movie of one of his novels that didn't take place in the Austrian Alps, but they made it take place there. There's an allusion to the Alps in in the novel, but there wasn't like a scene. But then the movie makers made a scene. And so then he's like, cool, let's travel out there and let's go see this. You know, so he was like 12 years ago, you know, he was living in some other, you know, higher on the hog or in some other kind of psychic space. He was was like the big guy, you know. And now he's, you know, 12 years later, he has returned, he's alone. And so, yeah, it's going to weigh, everything's going to weigh real heavily, which again is all fairly... Not commonplace, but things that we can absolutely understand. We've gone back to places where we were with other people, and now we're back in that place alone. Um, And and she describes it so well, but I wouldn't call it this unique either, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I think something else. like, Like this story, sort of, it's it's very you know, like a lot of burial. It it's one thing, and then it suddenly, or not suddenly, but gradually suddenly if that's if that's a <laughs> term of art like it, it, it feels because it's so short how long is this one eight pages seven mm-hmm. pages mm-hmm. it starts to gradually become something else and i mean i read this as a kind of horror story writer's block is kind of horror it's sort of a horror notion in itself but the anti get, keeps getting upped
0: we always talk about vario's Her- genius for compression And what she's able to, I mean, what she manages on just this one page where we learn about this dual perspective, 12 years ago this, 12 years later the other. And then all of a sudden, once in the night he was wakened by his heart. His heart always wakened him in time for him to witness his own dying. And he waited now with his hand over his chest. That's the next thing after um This whole section about making the movie 12 years ago, boom, that here's the next thing for us to think about.
1: Which, which gets us into what I think the story is about without being very direct. but you know, it's, it's a, it is almost terror, not of his own death, but I think of sort of but being present for his own death. <laughs> Like, I, I don't think dying is bothering this guy. I think he has a little bit of a death wish in a way. But it's, he thinks he's, that, that waking up in the night with his heart is like him, he's, he's, he's going to be awake for it. He's not going to die in his sleep. And that is starting to terrify him. And I think that is superseding any concerns that he has a publishing deadline.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and he's only 60 and he's healthy. Mm-hmm. So it's not a, it's not rational but there's something going on with this guy that's starting to slip, you know. And I think that they, that's one of the primary clues when he, when he says that he always wakes up in, in time to, for his own heart attack, basically, is how I read that.
0: But the next thing he does is take out his pen, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. He's like, oh, I'm Jump alive. Right. Right. So the fear <laughs> subsided. He took his notebook from the bedside table, and fumble to uncap his pen. He looks at the mountains, and suddenly it says, his hand was given no reason to write. His hand was given no reason to write.
1: To my mind, that this isn't a story about writing. You know, he, he thinks it, he, the, the character thinks it's a story about writing. He <laughs> thinks he's in a story about writing, <laughs> you know. If only he could get the pen started and tell us about that, you know, experience, when they were making the movie, or
2: whatever, Mm. whatever,
1: when he met this... like, And, you know, I think that the the genius of the story is that it, you know, it can easily be read that way, as, oh, this writer's having a lot of trouble, he's trying to get those words out, and he almost, you know, he thinks he's having a heart attack, and therefore then he starts to write, oh, no, no words are coming, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) But also, was this another place he would leave his notebook empty? Because that's what it's been like all spring into the summer. He had found no place where he could begin his memoir. So it's been going on for a while. Can I go
1: back to the beginning? Mm-hmm. Something that, that struck me on this read as being weird and relates to that a little bit. What I would say is there's certain details in this story that sort of send you in the wrong direction, I think, mm-hmm. in part. Like as if it is sort of this, you know, and then at the end... Oh, what happens? He starts to write. As if that's the story. And I, 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 there's something, again, I, I don't even necessarily know what it is, but in the second paragraph there's this strange line. I'll just read the from the top of the second paragraph. Lang arrived in Grindenwald in the evening, coming from Bern, where, and this is where it gets weird, where, comma, contrary to his intention to call on a friend from the States and tell him about the insoluble task his memoirs had become he had stayed only half a day and called on no one so to me it's a it's an odd sentence like who cares like what happened in the other place he stopped where he was going to see a friend to tell him what i would see as the fairly boring story about how he can't write his memoirs i i think she's capturing his sense of what this story is like which is oh, he's traveling in order to, to jumpstart his memoirs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but again, I think then the story kind of undercuts that by not being quite about that and starts to get quite scary. He's starting to see things that aren't there, and what he's seeing is frightening to him. And that seems to go far beyond his, his art and his profession.
0: Yeah, thanks for taking us back to the beginning because now I'm reading again. What happens just after that? With the, it was a national holiday there, and there were fireworks, and he sees this figure twice as tall as himself walking toward him. Except it's not. A, it's not what he right. thinks it is. <laughs> it's a little girl.
1: It's a little girl carrying a torch in the woods. <laughs> a wonderful image. Someone approached him on the path, a figure twice as tall as himself. Closer, he saw it was a little girl, half as tall as himself, carrying a long stick covered with tallow, the torch at its top, casting around her a high black figure of shadows. So it's, it's very threatening, even though it's a little girl celebrating, you know, some national holiday. Um,
0: but it's so almost cinematic. Suddenly, I see it almost like the opening of a movie, where the, here's this guy. We're getting to know his character, and this weird thing happens that might be foreshadowing something. I don't know. It's such an odd thing. This uh, this little girl with the torch.
1: And and I think that really sets the tone for what I see is like the alternate story here, Mm -hmm. the story that's not about some guy named Thomas Lang, his publishers are waiting for his, you know, grand finale book of his memoirs. I think it's about somebody being, you know, kind of um, unmoored, you know, Mm -hmm. alone and unmoored, you know, and and Buriald is a, you know, great, great articulator of the befuddlement of loneliness. In a way, and I think that this guy epitomizes a lot of, you know, what I see in others of her stories, which is like he sort of thinks he knows what he's doing, but uh, these other things are creeping up on him. And in, in his case, what his eyes see is not what's there, but what his eyes see are what the visions in his own head, which are starting to be frightening. And it happens a number of other times when we start to get to what he sees when he looks out into the mountains. And that's when the story kind of becomes this sort of uh, low-level, but not less intense for it, horror story.
0: Because right before that section that you're talking about, he talks about what he's lost. So it says, um, In quiet places he heard in memory the voices of his healers back in the States, men who had never truly known just what it was he had lost, and gave the law such facile names, confidence, faith, whatever, and the names of several persons who had been dear to him and were lost to him. So there was all this promise and all this potential and all this confidence and faith. And I think the idea is that, as it says next, there was a loss beyond their probing, a loss they were unwilling to accept. You know, it reminds me a little bit of um, what we've talked about before around... This idea that these stories are so quiet and ostensibly, well, there's nothing happening. These people are in their own heads. Nothing's happening. When really, when I read a burial story, I I feel like I ran a marathon. I mean, I feel like there's so much happening inside our minds. And she gives names and stories to things that are so difficult to articulate to another person. And, and,
1: and it's right here in that paragraph, in, that, in those sentences you quoted. Mm-hmm. It's that, you know, the the people back home, the healers, maybe his therapist, his friends, his editor, all saying, you know, oh, Thomas, all oh, you, you know, you're going to be fine. You've got to get your confidence back. you got to, you know, you've got to get your mojo back. It's going to be fine. Why don't you travel? Why don't you, you know, wanna, that, that'll help you, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so, you know, he does because he can. And, uh, and, and, and but then then burial says it, spells it out again in this way that she's almost frighteningly courageous to spell stuff out on the page. And somehow it doesn't for me weaken the story, because even when she spells out a theme, it makes it more complicated. Like here, there was no loss beyond their probing. A loss they were unwilling to accept as the finality he knew it was. A loss, a failing that might even be commonplace and yet was a terrible sacrilege. And then this is the kicker line it was indifference, uh. like a deep, drugged sleep to everyone else on earth. His problem goes deeper than his writer's block. He's become indifferent other people, to life.
0: So can you read the next line?
1: Ah. (laughs) It's (laughs) it's always funny to read, like, ah, (laughs) ah. It sounds ridiculous when you read it, but that is what's on the page. Ah, comma. How could that change have come about in himself when his very reason for being had been the belief that each human life was sacred? There's, uh, on the the back of my um, North Point edition, the infinite passive expectation. The first, you know, quote, I hate that word blurb, but that's what it is, the blurb. <laughs> the, the, the quote is from Wright Morris, who's one of my favorite writers uh, from Nebraska. You know, he spent most of his life, his adult life in California. He wrote about 40 books, most of which are not read anymore, but he's truly um, an essential American writer. And he worked at San Francisco State, where I taught for many years, and Gina burial taught also at San Francisco State, and uh, you know, not the most uh, kind of an unsung school, right? To have these two giants, but mm-hmm. that's what happened, um, and it you know it was an incredible department, and and Wright Morris. There's a method to my whatever I'm going, where I'm going here, (laughs) Uh, I I promise. So Wright says about Burial, I'll just read what he says. Gina Burial is at home with the emotions that do our living for us, enlarge and deflate us, nourish and exhaust us, and in the fullness of time betray our extravagant expectations. That's a great quote, and you don't read quotes like that anymore. Wright <laughs> Morris wasn't, wasn't screwing around. He got right to the heart of it. And in the fullness of time, betray our extravagant expectations. This is another story about the passion of expectations and what can happen to them at some point in your life. But the reason I mention Wright Morris in this very long segue <laughs> is that he is particularly great at questions in fiction. In other words, his prose often has questions in it, multiple questions, almost on every page sometimes. His characters will be asking a question, or his narrator will be asking a question, and this is an example of that in *Buried*. How could that change have come about in himself when his very reason for being had been the belief that each human life was sacred? Instead of, I mean, she raises this question, how could somebody who believed that each human life was sacred How could that belief go away? And presumably that's the belief that makes him a writer and makes him a human. That's gone away. And it it doesn't answer it. It raises the question. And that is how I think she and Wright Morris to an extent gets away with kind of spelling out what may be the theme of the story. Mm -hmm. But instead of making it didactic, makes it complex because we don't know why he's now indifferent.
0: You know what the uh, women in their beds, the counterpoint press line is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It is ah, how could that change have come about in himself when his very reason for writing had been the belief that all life was miraculous?
1: She she changed it. She edited it.
0: And what do you think of that change, given everything you just said about Wright Morris?
1: just hit upon a, 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 you know, to my mind, truly fascinating <laughs> edit. Uh, and I always wondered about that. I, 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 I've i always wondered about how, you know, kind of uh, gathering these stories in their originals, because I, cause I know she did editing, but I there's no way to know, you know, there's no biography of her, and there's not a lot of essays about her. So um, to me, the original is better. Mm-hmm. But I can see why she... I think she's trying to trick us in the revision to make it seem, again, that this is a story about writing. Because in my version, the original version, or one of the original versions, you know, this was published in 82. When did Women in Their Beds come out? 98. So she revised um, going into those... to to that uh, new edition um, of Women in Their Beds. So to me, mine is... His very reason for being had been the belief that each human life was sacred. It goes to like the heart of who he is and not just his profession.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: I think she's trying to, I think she's almost like maybe she was self-conscious. She thought, oh, you know what? I gave away the store there in that line. I don't think she did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, because it's framed as a question. Mm-hmm. But I think it's
0: fascinating. But I I also feel like uh, they're the same, they mean the same thing. They mean the same thing in that I think f- for a writer, the reason for writing is be- is this belief that lives are sacred, people are complex, everybody's kind of miraculous walking around. <laughs> I don't know, I feel like, could it be that she was trying to mitigate the intensity of the first way of saying it, the way she said it first? Um I'm not sure. I guess we'll never know.
1: You're putting it more generously than I was. You know, and, and I, when I say tricky, I don't mean she's trying to trick us. I just mean that, that, that I think that the way that she rewrote it is more in line with what the character is thinking, which is probably a better way to go mm. than what maybe the writer was thinking his very being, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I think you're right. I think she, you know, maybe it was too much. It was too charged. And so she edited it down. I mean, I, you know, again, there's no way to know. I mean, it's obviously an incredibly key line in the story and the fact that there are two different versions of it, mm-hmm. I think gives us some insight into the way she worked mm-hmm. and even even revising a story that was written, you know, maybe 17, you know, 16 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And then she she makes a change like that, I think is, um is really, really interesting.
0: The very next movement in the story is back to him opening the curtains and looking at those mountains. Right. And the hikers.
1: You know, which starts to bring us to what he starts to see when he looks out into the mountains at various points in the story. You know, he's, it's a common thing. You're on the, you're on the ground and you're looking up at the people in the, I mean, I remember being in Yosemite and looking at, you know, the people climbing and they look like little ants, you know, <laughs> and, and that's kind of how they appear to, to, to Lang in this story. You know, he's, he's down on the ground watching them and they start to take on, I think, kind of almost a sinister cast to him, you know, when he's focusing on these these, um, th- these mo- this movement in the mountains, which are people.
0: So there there comes a description after that where he settles in like he's going to write in his notebook. And he's looking around and describing the other guests and the Persian rugs and everything around him. And then there's this line, he settled himself at a large table in a corner of the parlor. So we're like, okay, he's going to sit down and write, look at all this stuff going on all around him. But all he could do was trace the glow and grain of the wood around his empty notebook.
1: (laughs) Again, he's this writer who can't write. But if you're going to write a writer that can't write story, (laughs) then then if you've got a detail where he's tracing the wood on the table, (laughs) that's, you know, I'll take it because it's so damn great, you Mm -hmm. know, but again, I kind of wonder, okay. And somebody else, somebody might listen to this wonder like, well, okay, all right, well, where's the story going? (laughs) Is it going anywhere? Is is it, you know, (laughs) is it? And, and it's, it, you know, it's hard to explain her compression, you know, you you, something you have to experience, but you know, it, it moves off of him sitting there trying to write again He's kind of going back in his room going outside looking at the mountain at one point he sees some dogs and in the faces of the dogs he sees <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what do you think of that
0: i thought i have to ask peter about this <laughs> What does he see in the faces again? He sees... Who does he see? It he, says, uh, the dogs resembled wolves, tawny with black markings, and their wild, intelligent Mongol faces reminded him of the faces of the 19th century Russian writers. And then a little further down the list, Gogol, Tolstoy, Chekhov. <laughs> right. In the, in
1: the wolves. <laughs> well, this guy's kind of losing it. But, you know, he sort of goes to his his heroes, and he starts seeing his heroes in the faces of dogs. I mean, it's not exactly complimentary, but (laughs) but it's just weird. Like, it's this idea, and we were talking, I believe, before we started recording, uh, about, what's that theory you
0: mentioned? Oh, the concept of defamiliarization. (laughs) Yes, what's that again? So it's this Russian formalist literary concept about Making extraordinary the ordinary, descri- defamiliarizing something in your description, making it strange, as they say. Uh, so yeah, that.
1: <laughs> it's a pretty graphic example That's, of that, that and works. maybe even over the top, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's not perfect, and you know, not everything she does is brilliant, and you know, that. Even though I thought, I thought, I just thought it was more funny than <laughs> than I didn't, I didn't see Chekhov. Although you know they, these these are whiskered men, so I, <laughs> I, I can see I, you know. I, I mean, I think he's sort of almost Lang is almost telling a joke to himself, sort of obviously, you know. And so, but it wasn't like a, a part of the story that moved me. It was just sort of like, oh, that's odd,
2: yeah. You know, but
1: he's starting. He's starting to slip. He's starting to slip. You know, more, even more, and that actually is where the story starts to enter. The final, what we would call maybe the final phase, right? Yeah. It, he keeps he keeps seeing these climbers, but he sees two climbers in particular at one point, and he starts to imagine what they're doing at various times of the day. They're he, he they're up there, he but imagines that they are a couple, which is important. Um, he was once at this place with you know somebody he was you know a woman that he was with. Um, who he no longer talks to. There's a, a beautiful line where he says that, you know, he, the people, uh, the, 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 the lover he was with and the friend and the friend's wife, he's not in touch with any of them anymore, and they are most likely not in touch with each other. So you think of these very intense friendships and relationships and you know, romantic relationships that we have, and then 12 years later, no one's talking. Mm-hmm. How, they would never have imagined that when mm-hmm. they were all in the hotel together, probably. Is there gonna be a time when none of us are gonna be speaking?
0: I know. You know. And there's um, a, there is a section right before all that where he's looking, he's climbing up the stairs and he sees the photographs of climbers from before uh, who had um, climbed the uh, Der Eiger. This, this mountain, right. and it says um, that the names of the fallen were preceded by white crosses. So there, there, you know, there's this idea about life and death there too, but what struck me even more than that dramatic detail is that he stops to look at a photo of a couple from Germany, a man and a woman, she is strongly smiling blonde, and he a curly haired, handsome fellow, the kind who would take a woman along. <laughs> <laughs> right. What does that mean? What does that even mean?
1: <laughs> but if somehow we just sort of... Oh, I know that, right? I but know that But that used to be him.
0: Because he was like, "Come on,
1: we can do this together. <laughs> Let's do it." You know, and she's like, "All right, all right."
2: So, or
0: maybe
1: who knows? Maybe she was a better climber than you. <laughs> but, um,
0: but I feel like he sees himself in that guy. Like he uh, he calls him handsome. The blonde's smiling, the curly-haired fellow is handsome, and the kind who would take a woman along. And didn't he do that 12 years ago? Um, Sounds like
1: it. (laughs) I mean, except we don't know anything about No, that's true. Because I I think this story is sort of depersonalized. This isn't, you know, this isn't the story of Thomas Lang's relationship in the mountains. You know, I think of like something like uh, uh, Kawabata's Snow Country, where, you know, it's this incredibly torrid affair in the mountains and in then in, 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 in all the characters do is think about it for the rest of their lives. That's not what this story is. Mm. This is not. It's This isn't about Thomas Lang's personal life. Mm-mm. It's about these weird visions he's starting to have when he's trying to work on his memoirs. You,
0: you know, you had doubts about it, but I still feel like there's something very clear. There's a very clear path from the beginning to the end. Every time I look at it again, I'm more and more convinced of that fact. And, I mean, and,
1: and I am won over mm-hmm. by that. I read something once that Russell Banks said about oh, you adore a Dora Welty story. Story. He says you have to be forty to read it, <laughs> which is <laughs> kind of ridiculous. And I think I was under forty when I first read. it. I was like, that's bullshit. I can, I can, I can do it. <laughs> but, but it, I remembered that when I was reading this today, I was like, maybe you do have to be starting to kind of starting your life. You can see you can see an endpoint, and mm-hmm. you read this story, and that's what started to freak me out about this story.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and not, in a, not in a again not in a sort of a, uh, superficial. Not a, a you know it wasn't like hitting that. It wasn't like about dying. It was just about you reach a certain point, and you're you're, you know, you're the way you see those expectations that we talked about
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know last time are starting to dim and And he's not at the very end of his life. That's what I think is so um tragic about this story.
0: He's you not know, Thomas
1: Lang is not dying.
0: maybe he knows he has fewer he has fewer years in front of him than behind him. <laughs> and he, this thing about um this age, leaning into sixty, pushing sixty, and the sense that this pressure that he has to write maybe he feels that by this stage of his life he needs to have written what you know Gogol Tolstoy <laughs> and Chekhov did in their lives and you know when he when he looks at the at the faces of the dogs and sees his his russian writer heroes it it do, she does write that he felt amused it amused him but then he felt lightheaded <laughs> <over him. laughs> Because I,
1: I I I continue to, and I may be absolutely wrong about this, but continue to believe that that he doesn't know what story he's in, that he thinks it's a story about a guy who's trying to write his memoirs, and I think burial knows it's about a guy who's starting to just starting to edge away from life, at and the moment he, she's capturing that moment in in the eerie visions he's starting to have. And that, to me, is where the story has its most yeah. power. And and there's the line, and I'll, I'll read the the paragraph, but here's where it happens, I think. The story, and, and, and this is where, when I was like, oh, wait, now, now I understand what Yvette was talking about. You know, why why she was drawn to this story. When there's, you know, many, many others that have, like, knocked me over, -hmm. Quicker? (laughs) This Mm -hmm. one took me a while. Mm -hmm. But here's the paragraph. Should I read it? Yes. In the morning, he went out under an overcast sky before any hikers appeared. The stone was monstrous. Each sight of it failed to diminish by repetition the shock of it. That's an amazing sentence. Each sight of it failed to diminish by repetition the shock of it. Mm -hmm. That double it. So steep was the north side, the mountain must have been split down the very center, and the other half was a hundred miles away. The climbers were not yet halfway up the wall. Often, as before, he lost sight of them, found one again and not the other, and then found the other after losing the first. After a time, he covered his eyes to rest them. If they fell, would the silence and the distance Denied to him their terror? He lowered his hand again, searched again, and found one dark figure on a snowy ledge. The figure fell the instant he found it. It fell so fast he was unable to trace its fall and unable to find it on a lower ledge or at the base. Nowhere, now, was the other climber. Then, both had fallen... And their terror entered into his heart without his expecting it. It was the same terror that wakened him in the night at the last moment so that he might witness his own dying. It was mm-hmm. the same kind of moment now under the sun. With his hand over his heart, he went back over the hills to the hotel.
0: So this version, this edition says.
1: Oh no, another change! This is great! <laughs> Oh, we're like making burial history here.
0: <laughs> if they fell with the silence and the distance deny to him the tragicness of their end so and, that
1: I have if they fell with the silence and the distance deny to him their terror
0: yeah huh. and then I'm the, going to go with my verse <laughs> I knew it <laughs> <laughs> And then the um, the last lines of the paragraph, Then both had fallen, and their mortal terror struck at his heart. With his hand on his chest, he went back over the hills to the hotel. You had much more in your version.
1: Yeah, now she's making significant edits on this story. And, uh, you know, think of what the scholars do with the Faulkner edits or whatever. I mean, this is a major, major American writer, you know, what I would say messing with a story in a pretty significant way. Uh, But the, you know, the upshot of this paragraph, you know, I I think that, I think this, my version is a little more subtle, slightly more subtle. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I wouldn't notice it if it was, if I was only reading that version, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, but, but I think, I, I think that this, this version is a little less, uh, you know, less um, you know uncharacteristic of her to cook it up a little bit, and I feel like that's what I'm hearing there a little, but that's probably unfair. If 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 what he saw with his own eyes just happened, right? Mm-hmm. And in my version, I feel the two people just died more than in your version. But I think <laughs> in the version, the revised version,
2: he's he's
1: right. He's writing it. <laughs> Yeah. He's writing it, which is what writers do, because writers are cruel human beings that use the uh, you know the tragedy of others to you know to make other people moved, but we're maybe not as moved by something that actually happens. I yeah. mean, you know, we're. I mean, again, I you know, it's all overstating that idea, but I you know, I think I think we can't underestimate it all that that that. What just happened in both versions of the story is that Thomas Lang just watched mountain climbers fall off the face of a mountain to their deaths. Yeah, is what he thinks has happened.
0: Yeah, I think Barrio writes about writers and people, journalists, people who keep diaries. But I don't. I think you're right. I don't think this is a story about writers for writers. I I think you're absolutely right about that, and the idea of Um, indifference that we talked about earlier it's just that's universal like nobody wants that right so
1: but he is indifferent now as we know and Mm -hmm. even that and i you know i I think in a way the story is about coming back from indifference i think i mean i think it's an ultimately pretty optimistic story he's starting to actually care (laughs) again yeah you know, and he's starting to care so much that he's seeing people fall off mountains that may not have actually fallen off mountains. Yeah, because the story is ambiguous.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: At the
1: end, we, the suggestion is that he's seen something that didn't, didn't
2: actually happen.
0: Yeah, when he goes to inside the hotel and tries to convey to to explain to somebody what he just saw, it's it doesn't translate. And yeah, and then the, the ambiguity is there for us.
1: And there's that incredible line that the manager says. Um, he's tell, he's trying to tell the manager, you know, the, the couple on Iger, they fell. And the manager says, may I ask who? The couple on Iger he says. And then uh, the manager's confused, and, you know, they're speaking German, and he's not very, his German's not very good. Uh, yes, the photographs in the corridor, only those two, only those who succeeded, only those. He thinks they're talking about, he thinks he's talking about the people in the photographs. Mm-hmm. And he's like, no, 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 I'm talking about these people who just fell off the mountain just now. And, and he says, uh, the manager says, there is no one climbing now. And then he says, then they fell. And the manager says, no one is climbing and no one is falling. Beautiful line of dialogue. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? No mm-hmm. one is climbing and no one is falling. And I, we don't know if that's true or not.
0: No one is climbing. No one is falling. No one, no one is living a life to do such a thing, and no one is experiencing the worst thing that ever happened to them.
1: Except we know that in the world, and I think, I mean, not to cut to the ultimate chase of the book, <laughs> but someone is always climbing and someone is always falling, and that's what he's seeing. Mm-hmm. It's, it, the story is so, such, so broadly, thematically, it's crazy. But I think ultimately the story is really about is Thomas Lang starts to realize that, 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 that everyone is climbing and everyone is falling. Or, or Many people in this given moment on the earth are climbing and falling right now. And yeah. that starts to, he starts to care or he starts to feel that again. And yes, he does start writing at the end.
0: Can you read the last paragraph?
1: Yeah, and I wondered, let me know if there's a change, because I'm so curious about this. Okay. Um, laying up the stairs, hand on the rail, a weakness in his legs from the terror of the lives lost, no matter if they were specks, motes, undulations of the atmosphere. Up in his room, he sat down at his desk, opened his notebook, and wrote the first word on the first of the faint lines that he likened now to infinitely fine blue veins. On the one hand, yes, this is now a triumphant writer story. He has come back to his notebook and he starts writing, but there's something about those blue veins that really is really striking and that, that strikes me as being far more important than the memoirs. I've and how many times have you looked at lined paper and not seen that, you know?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And so Barryault, you know, again, she shows us like look at what you're seeing see it again, see it anew, you know. And, I mean, lots of writers exhort this. Emerson, you know, everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. People are always saying, try, you know, try and make it new, see it new, you know.
0: But it is true. I mean, it, you're making that point. And th- the only thing she changed was the very first line of that paragraph. Lang went up the stairs, hand on the rail, a weakness in his being from the lives lost. No matter if the climbers were only specks, etc., so there's a little bit of a of a revision there, of an edit there. But
1: no matter if the climbers were only specks, and I have no matter if they were specks, moats, undulation mm-hmm. in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a great example of the danger of messing with the story. <laughs> you know, I you know I'm a I'm a big fan, but um, this is you know I, I maybe this and maybe that you feel, I mean. The, I, I think I think we just got a little closer to her in a sense. Like we see her struggling with this one. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what I, that's how I read these revisions. She's struggling with this story.
0: Well, any closing remarks on this story before we say goodbye to Gina Berriot?
1: This was a tough one, and it, it it shouldn't be, but it it really is.
0: Uh, you know what? And I, I and from my vantage point, I hear it as. Much more straightforward. I I I really do. Okay,
1: good. Yeah. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad because um, you know it's those two climbers, and even there's the one. There's the one. I guess one thing I would mention is is he. You know he's been watching these climbers, um, and there's this line about um, he he wakes in the night, wondering, and the way that Beryl puts it is he was wakened by a deep wondering about the couple on the ledge. The fact that they're lying on a ledge somewhere on that great stone stirred in him a concern for all the persons he had ever loved. So mm-hmm. thinking about this couple on the ledge makes him, again, without a lot of specificity, you know.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He, but but um, And then he went to sleep again, and the couple was lying somewhere, on the cold vastness of the night. The couple was lying somewhere on the cold vastness of the night on no ledge. So he has a vision of them falling even before they fall. And I think that's an important, Mm -hmm. um, just tiny little piece of the story is that his, what he's starting to see are the things he's imagining. Mm -hmm. And, and, but it's not necessarily real. Um, and you could you could say that's a return to his imagination, and you you know there's a positive spin on it, and also sort of you know that he's starting to enact the darkest visions mm-hmm. of his imagination onto what he's seeing in the world.
0: Gina Berriot is the author of Works of the Imagination. It's published in The Infinite Passion of Expectation, published by North Point Press. It can also be found in the collection. Women in Their Beds, published by Counterpoint Press with an introduction by Peter Orner. Peter Orner is the author of six books, including Maggie Brown and Others and Am I Alone Here? He holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at TPR.org. Jacob Rizzotti composed our theme music. Our digital producer is Bree Kirkham. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Eva Benavides.